to uh, talk about just between us. This is um, a message in which I want you to overhear and eavesdrop on my conversation with Pastor Dennis. Just between us. Yesterday we went to the, my wife and I went to the cemetery to place flowers on graves of our loved ones. I expected to see the name Robert Smith because we were going to place a flower on the grave of my father, Robert Smith Sr. There it was, I saw it. And then we were looking for the gravesite of another loved one and I happened to pass another Robert Smith. 1924 to 1977. I thought about that because of that same cemetery, Wanda and I will be buried one day. And I thought I'm looking at my name above ground. My mortality becomes more and more important to me. My death date. It's going to happen unless Jesus comes first. So there are things that I need to say and there's work that I need to do while it is day. The night is coming when no one will be able to work. And so I want to talk to my son just between us today and hope that you will overhear the message and that you eavesdrop on the conversation. I want to read two verses from Second Timothy chapter one and Second Timothy chapter two. I I want to treat both chapters not in totality, but in summary. Second Timothy chapter one verse one and two. Second Timothy chapter two verse one. Second Timothy chapter one verse two. To Timothy, my beloved child. Second Timothy chapter two, verse one. Amen. You then, my child. You may be seated. This is a very affectionate epistle. In fact, Paul writes two epistles or two letters to Timothy. You've already heard how he opens up chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, with uh, verse 2 by saying, Timothy, my beloved child. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, you then, my child. If I was writing, I would say, to Tracy, my beloved child, you then my child. It's affectionate. It's, it has nothing to do with a gender agenda. It has everything to do with heart-to-heart affection. Paul loves Timothy. Robert loves Tracy. Amen. Amen. The benediction is customary. It's Pauline. Chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, of course, is God giving us what we don't deserve. And mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. Grace just happened. Scott Peck uh, went to Georgia and had a typical uh, Georgian breakfast. He ordered it. And he got everything that he wanted except one extra thing. A mound of whiteness was on his plate. And he asked the server, what is this? She said, they're grits, sir. After which he responded, but I didn't order grits. She said, sir, you're in the South, and in the South, grits just come. Grace just comes. You don't order grace. Grace comes. In fact, there is general grace. Everybody gets general grace. Blasphemers, serial killers get grace. People who didn't even thank God for last night's lying down get grace. Atheists and agnostics get grace. That's general grace. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. Just general grace. But the best grace is salvific grace. It's the kind of grace that saves you. By grace are ye saved through faith. And those of us who know Jesus Christ, salvifically speaking, have received salvation by grace. Grace, mercy. Mercy withholding from us what we really do deserve. We have long-term memory when it comes to grace. All of us know what we don't deserve, which is everything. <laughs> we deserve absolutely nothing but death. Don't, I know this punctures the pride of modern-day preaching as if we have something to offer God. We don't. God does not need us. You and I are not the only rooster on the barnyard. We're not the only pebble on the beach, and we're not the fish in the sea. God was doing very well before he ever said, let us make man. We add absolutely nothing to God. God didn't become bigger. God didn't become better. God has always been what God has always been, and that is God with or without us. And the only reason why he made us is so that he could share himself with us so that we, he could inhabit the praises of his people. We have long-term memories when it comes to God's grace, but we have short-term memories when it comes to God's mercy. Things that we know we deserve that he withheld from us. We forget that. Times that we should have been wiped out, places that we have been, things that we have done, we forget all about that and then get into the complaining mode. When crises come into our lives, we start belly aching and complaining about what's taking place. Do you understand, had it not been for the Lord on our side, we would not be here? One of the worst things in the world is a complaining Christian. We have nothing to complain about. Where, where does complaint come in with Psalm 34 and 1? I will bless the Lord at all times. What kind of room do I have left for complaining? Yeah. Well, my leg hurts. You've got a leg. Yeah. Yeah. 
got short-term memories when it comes to mercy. In fact, I think what Jesus does is to perform redemptive reversal when it comes to grace and mercy. He is the author of grace. Grace came by Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And yet, he does not get what he deserves. He doesn't get grace. He gets judgment. So that we who deserve judgment might get grace. And when it comes to mercy, God prevents him receiving what we should have received. God prevents him receiving grace and allows him to receive judgment. He who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, became sin. That we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. And most of the time when I hear testimonies, testimonies are given in church based upon the temporal. Some physical, tangible thing. I seldom hear someone stand up and thank God for those intangibles, those eternal qualities, grace and mercy and God's greatness. It's always a new job. It's always a physical healing. It's always a new car. It's always new clothes. When is someone going to stand up and say, God has given me something that cannot be garnished, something that cannot be repossessed. He's given me grace and mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace. Peace with God. That is, there is no hostility between God and us any longer. We are on speaking terms. Peace with God and then the peace of God. After I get peace with God so that God and I are no longer enemies and I'm in his body, I can have the peace of God. As Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, 7, and 8, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God and the peace of God that compasses, surrounds, transcends your comprehension will keep your hearts and keep your minds through Jesus Christ. What we as Christians need to remember is we've got the peace of God. It's not tranquility without turbulence. It's tranquility in the midst of turbulence. The world is watching us. They want to know what in the world keeps you ticking. You've been jobless. You've been homeless. You've been sick. I'm looking at my, my brother right now. He told me about his wife who might be ready to cross the swelling tide. And he's here at church worshiping God because it's tranquility in the midst of turbulence. It's peace in the midst of a storm. It's not the kind of peace that the disciples had before Pentecost in Mark chapter 4 when a storm breaks out and Jesus is on board and Jesus is inactive and he's asleep and they sue him for non-support. Master, don't you care that we perish? But it's the kind of peace that blows your mind. You don't know why you worship. Conditions haven't changed, but you worship your way out of turbulence. You worship your way out of trouble. You worship your way out of despondency. In fact, that's what's wrong with many of us. We're waiting on God to do something and he's already done it. We're waiting on something to happen and it's already done. If you would just break loose and just go on and praise God, 
not only for what he has done, what he is doing, but what he is going to do. Don't wait until the battle is over. Shout now. That's what God told Joshua to tell the Israelites. You take and march around the wall 13 times, and after the 13th revolution, I'm still not going to pull down the wall until you shout. You don't have a bulldozer or a crane, but if you shout, I'll pull the walls down. And I wonder today if some walls may not fall if we go on and shout before God does his work. He has become our peace. That's what Ephesians 2.14 reminds us of. He is made our peace so that God takes out punishment on Christ that we might be free. What a marvelous, what an unthinkable thing. He who was able to call down 12 legions of angels and there's 6,000 Roman soldiers in a legion. That's 72,000 angels he could have called down. It only took one to kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And yet he wouldn't do it because God enabled him by withholding his grace from Jesus to give us grace. So Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a Trinitarian-centered letter. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 and following. Paul says, I am writing about God who is center. Verse 1. 2 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. I am grateful to God. Verse number 6. God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of love, of power, and of a sound mind. Verse 7, stir up the gift of God that is within you. Verse number 8, take and participate in the sufferings of the gospel with the help or the dependence on the power of God. And then Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, I am a criminal chained but the word of God is not changed. It's God-centered. And then it is Christ-centered. Second Timothy chapter 1, again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse number 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse number 9. The grace that is in Jesus Christ that you have received since the world began, verse 10, take and understand that it is revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And then Paul says in verse number 13, the teaching that you've heard from me, that sound teaching, hold it fast in love and faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse number 1. Be strong in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, suffer like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Verse number 8, remember Christ Jesus. It's God-centered, it is Christ-centered, and then it is Holy Spirit-centered. 
One time it's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, where Paul says, guard the, the deposit that has been entrusted to you with a reliance upon the help of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to know today that God never works outside of his triangular nature. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit simultaneously, cooperatively, instantaneously, participatorily, at the same time. He never works as Father without working as Son and Holy Spirit. He never works as Son without working as God and Holy Spirit. He never works as Holy Spirit without acting as God and Son. It's always the same. It's what Jonathan Edwards said to us, who was a great Puritan, born 1703 to 1758. God has forever known himself in a sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to say that because we have fragmented the Trinity. In fact, the worst thing about fragmenting the Trinity is one other thing, that when we became a Christian, we made the Trinity a quartet as if it's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and Robert Smith. No, no. We are absolutely nothing to God. If you don't believe that, mess around and die. And see how well your job cares. Somebody will be in your chair before your body gets cold. Somebody gonna wear your suits and your shoes. Somebody is going to marry your wife or husband. Somebody gonna live in that house you just paid off. So don't get the big head and think that you are so important, Robert Smith. You are absolutely dispensable. You are absolutely unnecessary, but because he allowed me to be in the service one more time and didn't have to let me live, I just want to give him praise and give him everything I have while I have a chance. God has forever known himself in a sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God. One God. We don't believe in tritheism, that is. We don't believe in three gods. Therefore, we don't use uh, the theological language of addition. It is not God the Father, one, plus God the Son, one, plus God the Holy Spirit, one, equals three. Because one plus one plus one equals three. We use the theological language of multiplication. God the Father, one, times. God the Son, one, times God the Holy Spirit one times yes. equals one because God cooperatively God simultaneously God participatorily is always acting in his trial nature as Father Son and Holy Spirit now if you can figure that out you understand more than any other human being has ever understood because the word Trinity is not in the Bible but that's what God does if you can figure it out it ain't God's it's just as simple as that. If you can demystify the mystery, if you can unscrew the inscrutable, and if you can figure out the unfigureoutability, it ain't God. God works in mysterious ways, his oneness to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides on every storm. You've got to understand that God is above us. And we don't believe in modalism. Modalism just really means that God exists as a singular person in different eras or epochs. In the Old Testament, he was Father. So he put on the mask 
of the Father. He wasn't Son and He wasn't Holy Spirit. So if God, the Father, worked in the Old Testament and had no son, he can't be a father. Because you can't be a father without a son. And if Jesus just showed up at Bethlehem and did not exist in pre-existent eternity, then God the Father is a mis misnomer. And then in the New Testament, he said, well, then God put on the mask of the son. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now in our era, God has put on the mask of the Holy Spirit who does not walk with us, but lives in us. I want you to know that in Old Testament, New Testament, and today, God has forever existed in a sweet and holy society, inseparably, indivisibly, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has forever known himself. Forever. That is, God has existed from beginning to end, in fact, he is the beginning of the beginning, to which there is no beginning of himself. And he is the ending of the end, to which there is no ending of himself. In fact, the psalmist just says he's from everlasting to everlasting. He has forever known himself. That is, no one knows God except God. The closer you get to God, the more distance you ought to recognize. I get concerned about people who are so close to God that they can tell you what God's going to do for the next six months like they've been interviewing God. No one's that close to God. When you get close to God, you realize how far away you are from him. And when you start knowing more about the Bible, you recognize how ignorant you are, how much you don't know. No one knows the Bible. We are trying to know the unknowable. And even angels who never sin, they don't have this wide vocabulary. When we pray, God, you who are omniscient and you are ubiquitous and you are omnipresent and you are unchanging and immutable. And, you know, they just cover their face. They can't even look at the Holy One. And they bow down and say, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his God. They don't come up with all these multisyllabic terms because I don't care what kind of term you put on God, it still ain't big enough. He surpasses them all. Well, God is good. Kentucky Fried Chicken is good. God is gooder than good and gooder than gooder than good. God is. You can put anything else you want to put on it. God just is. No one knows God except God. But that's why it is written of Jesus, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God except the one and only God who is the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. So if I know anything about God, it's because God has revealed it to me. It's God's self-revelation. You can't do research on it because his ways, Romans 11, 33, already past finding out. He's unresearchable. He has to tell you and tell me about who he is. And it ain't good enough to get secondhand stuff. It's all right. Criticize Thomas if you want to, but I like Thomas. Thomas won't believe until he has had an empirical experience touching 
the nail prints in his hand and his side. Criticize him if you want. But too many of us think that God has inducted us into his family because we're his grandchildren. God doesn't have grandchildren. God just has children. Which means you can't get saved through your mama. And you can't get saved through your daddy. And I don't care if your daddy pastor the church for a thousand years. You can't get saved. You've got to know God for yourself. Long ago, I didn't know nothing about Jesus and his love. I'd heard about it, but I never felt the manner that comes from above. But in this life of sin, when I could no longer stand, I asked my mama, how do you get to know the man? She said, you must be. Don't you see? You've got to be born again. You must have that fire and Holy Ghost, the burning thing that keeps the prayer wheel turning, the kind of religion that you cannot contend. It makes you move, makes you shout, makes you cry when it's real. I've got my hand on the wine and chain. My soul's been aching in my Jesus' name. I'm feel within. I'm free from sin. I know I've been born again. God has to reveal God's self to us. And it does it through the Son who becomes flesh. And it does it through the Holy Spirit. For John 14, 26 says that when the Spirit of truth is come, he will remind you of everything that I have taught you. And in John 16, 13, Jesus says about the Spirit, that the spirit of truth will come and he will not speak of himself but he will speak of the things he's heard of me in other words the holy spirit is the public relations manager for christ and christ is the public relations manager for god that's what christ says about god in john 5 19 he says whatever you hear of me speak you are hearing what i've heard my father say and John 12, 29, whatever you see me do, I'm doing what my father did. In other words, he says to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen my father. And the Holy Spirit takes and reveals to us who Christ the Son is, and Christ reveals to us who God the Father is, so that it is by Trinitarian self-revelation that we know God. God has forever known himself in a sweet and holy society. No competition, no one-upmanship, no rivalry. In a sweet and holy society, hear the words of Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 6 and 7. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Not a thing to be grasped. No competition in Trinity. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, he speaks of the Son and is satisfied in that role in revealing the Son. I think that whatever happens in heaven ought to be a reality on earth. In other words, the church ought to be a Polaroid snapshot of what heaven is about. Since there is a sweet and holy society in heaven, and Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it already done in heaven. I wish that we could ever get close to the place where rivalry and competition would stop. It doesn't make any difference who sings the song. What makes the difference is, does God get the glory? It doesn't make any difference who gets credit. What makes the difference is, is God being magnified. And if I can just stop competing, if I can just stop trying to be like somebody else, and thank God for the gift that he's given me. 
if I can just mind my own business and like Peter, stop worrying about John. What's John going to do? Jesus said, don't worry about John. You just follow me. If I can just know what my call is and what my gift is, if I can just stay in my own lane and be satisfied with the fact that he didn't have to give me a gift, but whatever he give, given to me, I'm going to give him full maximum glory for it. He has existed in the sweet and holy society as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Father. In creation, the Trinitarian nature of God is exposed. God speaks as Father. Let there be light. And light comes traveling at 186,000 miles a second. The Son is at work. Colossians 1.17 says, by the sun, all things consist, hold together. And John writes in John 1 and 3 that all things were made by him, Christ. And without Christ was not anything made that was made. So Christ is involved in creation. But the Holy Spirit is involved in creation. Because the Spirit, Genesis 1 2, hovered, brooded, moved upon the face of the water. And we've got to get to the place where we see God as a Trinitarian presence and not start uh, trichotomizing, that is, dividing God into three separate gods that is active, insert epochs and eras. Not only is God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit active in creation, he's active in redemption. God will be, if you will, the one who elects and Jesus will be the one who is a, reci a recipient of the election of God. In fact, Jesus says in John 20 and 21, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He sent me, and I'm sending you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is applying the teachings of Jesus to our own lives so that he is bringing to our remembrance the things of, that are being taught. God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... God is active in redemption, in creation, but he's also active in the consummation, in the end times. When that great getting up morning will take place, there will be a judgment. And God will be the judge. The son will be our defense attorney, our advocate. We ought to shout. John 1, chapter 2. I know you, you, you're waiting on me to get happy. I'm already happy. I don't need to lift up my leg and lift up my voice to get I'm already happy because I'm talking about eternal stuff. I'm not talking about the kind of stuff that's going to make you feel good until after the benediction. I'm talking about stuff that's going to affect you for eternity. Christ will be our defense attorney. John writes in 1 John 2 and 1, my little children, I run to you that you sin not. But if you sin, you have an advocate. You have a defense attorney, Christ Jesus the righteous, who is the covering, the propitiation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, but we also have a prosecuting attorney. That's why John will also write in John 12, 9 and 10, that Satan is the accuser, the prosecutor of the brothers and the sisters. And what he will present will be rights. When I stand before God, he can rightly accuse me and every one of us. Because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And all of us like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And there is none righteous, no, not one. That includes everybody. 
And when he says that, he writes. And he will want to accuse us. But the defense attorney, Jesus will stand up. Because even in our court system today, there is what is known as the law of double jeopardy. Which means that a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime. And when Satan takes and accuses us of our crimes, our defense attorney, Jesus, will stand up and say, yes. He is right about what he did, but I was tried for Robert. I was tried for Bird. I was tried for Wonder. I was tried for Portia. I was tried for Mary. I was tried for all the saints. And you can't try me again. I read David. I read him right now. I used to preach Psalm 23. Goodness and mercy shall follow after me. I always had goodness and mercy on my side. But David said, goodness and mercy shall follow after me. Which really means that when I stand before God and I know in my life there is dirt and there's sin and there's willful sin. And I look behind me and I will look at my pathway that's glowing with perfection. I wonder what happened to my sin. I hear God saying, did you hear what I said? Goodness and mercy will follow after you. Picking up your mess. Picking up your sin. Picking up your guilt. Picking up your blame. So that when we stand before God, we are dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sick and sad. Now if that doesn't make you shout, I'm sorry. He takes it upon himself that we might be spotless in his sights. It is not by our works, even though our works ought to follow our faith. But our works are only perfected in him when we are glorified. And then the Holy Spirit in the consummation will give the final appeal with the church in Revelation 22 and 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. So, May grace, peace, and mercy from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be given unto you. Paul writes this letter in jail. That's not how a person who's incarcerated all talk. Optimistically? In chains and talking like that? His body is chained, but his spirit is not chain. Hear what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9. Like a criminal I am enchained but the word of God is not chained. Some of the greatest saints and sages of the ages have done their great works in jail. John Bunyan in the city of Bristol, England wrote the allegory Pilgrim's Progress which is now several centuries old, which showed how Christian goes from the slough of sorrow to the celestial city of heaven. And people are still reading Pilgrim's Progress and getting great, great inspiration from it, and he wrote it in jail. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung in the Flossenburg, Germany jail, April 1945, writes a great book on ethics. The Cost of Discipleship, in which he says, the call to follow Jesus is the call to die. The call to follow Jesus is the call to die. Now, I love, I love um, um, 
uh, to hear about the purpose-driven church. Uh, the the uh, Rick Warren book that has sold millions and millions of copies. But I'm waiting for somebody to write a book on the purpose-driven death and not just the purpose-driven life. And the purpose-driven death is really the purpose-driven life. I'm crucified with Christ. Therefore, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. We live as if we are dead. Dead to the impulses of sin. Dead to the allurements of the world. Dead to trying to find fulfillment in temporal things. Dead. In fact, we are only free when we're in prison. Lord, make me a captive and I will be free. You are not free unless you are incarcerated to Christ. When you're free to do anything you want to do, you're in slavery. But when the chains of Christ hold you and you find fulfillment in being his willful captive, you are really free. Here is Martin Luther King Jr. who writes a letter from the Birmingham jail which is a letter addressed to eight white clergymen in Birmingham who thought that King was out of his place talking about the gospel in a political arena. And he writes about why black people can't wait to be free. And that letter is still being read and being embraced by people of all cultures, and he wrote it from a jail. From a jail where Joseph, receives the information that the Pharaoh has had a dream. And he is assigned with the opportunity to interpret the dream. When he interprets the dream, he knows that there are going to be some years of famine and some years of fruitfulness. He interprets the dream, and by storing up the grain, Judah and all of his other brothers come down to get grain, so much so that Judah is spared. Because if Judah died, then there is no Obed. If there is no Obed, there is no Jesse. If there is no Jesse, there is no Jesus. If there's no Jesus, then we are not here. But it took place in jail. Jeremiah is in jail in a miry dungeon without any ventilation. And an unlikely person, a eunuch, takes and pulls him up and puts some rags under his armpits so that he doesn't get cut. I mean, he's not drawn out of the pit in fashion, but old, dry, rotten rags. You never know what your deliverance is going to be. You never know what God's going to use to bring you up out of your dungeon. I know you'd like to have an elevator to bring you up, but God may have to use some dry, dirty, rotten rags that everybody has thrown away, and they don't think there's any possibility for use. And God says, I'm going to use the rags for your redemption. And sometimes the rag may be an individual who's not even in church. You know, I hear a whole lot of gospel from folk who are not saved. And out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God has perfected praise. But here is Paul in jail writing this letter. And Paul does something that's very unusual. He turns his prison into a pulpit. Do you hear him in Philippians 1, 12, and 13? He says, while he's in prison, that my imprisonment has advanced the gospel. Verse 13, those persons who are members of the imperial guard has heard the gospel as a result of my imprisonment. And in Philippians 4, 22, he says, the saints in Caesar's household say, hey, 
because the gospel has gone even to Caesar's household because Paul has gone there to preach the gospel even after the church at Rome was established. I'm here to tell you that God wants us to turn our prisons in the pulpits and our negatives into positives. This is what he does in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 to 31. The ball Bible says that Paul is taking the Rome. The first time he's taken there, the first era, uh, it's, it's a relaxed atmosphere. The Bible says he spends, verse 30, two whole years in prison at his own expense, welcoming guests, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching folk about Christ. And he did it with boldness, verse 31, and without hindrance. He spends two years under house arrest at his own expense. He has a furnished jailhouse apartment that he pays for for two years at his own expense. He had to pay to be in prison so that he could preach the gospel at his own expense. Now, I want to say this to you, son, since it's just between you and I. You've been here since 1997. I had absolutely nothing to do with you coming here. I didn't have any back uh, room meetings with anybody. Uh, I didn't make any suggestion. I didn't talk to any pulpit committee about you, anything. Uh, you're here because the Lord has led you here. Amen. Now, you've been here now almost 17 years. And as Paul spent two years paying his own room and board, in order to preach Jesus Christ and teach about the kingdom of God, uh, you paid your dues. There are some things you all be able to say uh, with more ease now and with I don't care now because you've paid your dues. I'm, I'm, thinking, about, um, I'm thinking about Johnny Hunt who passes the church in the Atlanta, Georgia area. Uh, I won't go into all the particulars, but uh, they built a um, building that houses about 10,000 people. Uh, and uh, that, that's okay if the gospel's being preached, and it is. Uh, but uh, he got a lot of critics from the insiders and from preachers. Johnny, you getting the folk out on the, the end of the limb of the tree. All this debt, all this risk. Johnny Hunt says, but it's at the end of the boles of the tree where the fruit is. Where the fruit hangs, you've got to press on to the end of the tree, and you will be second guessed, and you will be criticized, particularly by preachers. But as my dean told me when I was having administrative problems with someone, and uh, I was really frustrated and upset, and thought I was getting ready to to leave and check out of there, he he said to me, he says, uh, Brother Robert. Uh, who's the dean of the school? He told me who he was. He says, I just want to remember one thing. Remember who the dean is. He never said anything else. And he's been the dean. And he is the dean. Remember who the king is. Remember. Doesn't make any difference what I think or anybody else. Remember who the king You may have to get people out on the limb. And they don't see how. It's going to work out. But if you want to get away from just catching guppies and minnows and little small goldfish, Jesus says in Luke 5 and 5, launch out into the deep and let down your neck for a draft. Something revolutionary is going to happen at New Mission Church. Something revolutionary 
it's going to be inconvenient for some people, but something revolutionary. And it's not about our cause, it's about his cause. He spent two years at his own expense welcoming visitors. And he knew them. Some of the names in Romans, 12, Romans 16, he knew some of these names. Priscilla and Aquila and Aristopolis and Apelles, folks like um, um, uh, uh, Tryphosa and Tryphena, uh, individuals like he knew them because he had relationships with them. And you're such a relational person, which means then that you, as, as my sister was talking about, Jackson, uh, that you have a pastor's heart. And that's what it is. It's feeding the flock. So Paul welcomed folk on the house arrest for two years. And he preached the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, the kingdom is bigger than the church. Yeah. Uh, my wife is a very wise person. I call her the inimitable one. She's the incomparable one. She really is. Um, and God has blessed her in such a way. I don't deserve her. She's a tremendous godly person. She's the most godly person that I know. It's a fact. Amen. And I, I say that in her presence and outside of her presence. But she would buy for our grandchildren uh, when they were small clothes that were three or four size, uh, what they could wear. It just didn't make much sense to me. You know? They're three months. Get them a three-month outfit. Why are you buying 24 months? But she understood that they had to grow into the clothes. New mission has to grow into the kingdom. It's beyond 4809 Ravenna. It's beyond Madisonville. It's beyond Cincinnati. It's beyond the state of Ohio. It's beyond the United States. You've got to have not only a global and a local vision, you've got to have a global vision. That is global and local marriage. Which really means you're going to have to start sharing your pastor even more now Amen. with a kingdom agenda. He ain't going to be here every Sunday. He's not going to be here every Sunday. He's not going to be here every Sunday. God has some kingdom purpose. And the mark of a strong church is how do you do when the pastor ain't there? That's what Paul says in Philippians. He says, you have obeyed me in my presence as well as in my absence. And so get ready for kingdom extension. It's coming. For two years, he paid his own expense and welcomed visitors by preaching the kingdom of God and teaching people about Jesus Christ. And he did it with boldness. Verse 31 of Acts 28. Boldness. You follow the life of Paul. You're never going to see Paul praying for anything material for himself. And I'm not against material things. I think material things are nice. That's fine. It's fine. But that's not what defines your ministry. You know what, what, what the church prayed for? Check it out. In Acts chapter 4, 29, when Peter and John were arrested, they went to the prayer meeting. They prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 4, the earthquake shook the foundation of the house where they were praying and they went out and preached with boldness. When Paul gets finished outlining the whole arm of God, he concludes in Ephesians 6.19 and says, pray for me 
that I might declare the gospel with boldness. Now, it, 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 it's nice. I like to see it. Stand up and be a witness. Good. Ain't nobody going to say anything to you in church standing up and be a witness. Try it when you're the only Christian on your job. Try it when you sit in the cafeteria and nobody bows their head to thank God for food and you have to do it. I tell you what, try it when you're going down the road in a Greyhound bus or you're on a plane or you're on a train and you're sitting next to somebody. Try it. Open up the Bible. See how talkative people become. See how they want to know how you're feeling today. When you open up this book, they declare a moratorium on speech. They ain't got a thing to say because there's something about this book. I was in Atlanta and there was a man on the transporter. I was going to one of the terminals and uh, this was a brother. And the brother looked at me. He says, you are a man of God. He said, I thank God for you. He said, God, I'm talking about loud. God is great. He just, folks just looking around like the man had lost his mind. He had lost his mind. But he had lost his mind and regained the right mind. So it didn't make any difference how odd it looked. Some of us need to be more odd looking. We are trying to blend in so we look like everybody else. You and I are supposed to be peculiar and odd and strange. Something about us ought to make people know that we are Christian. And we don't have to be carrying some big Bible under our arm. We don't have to refuse to put, you better put some makeup on. Oh, I don't wear earrings because I'm holy. That doesn't make you holy. You better put some earrings on. Well, you know, I don't believe uh, in putting a straightening comb through my head. You better put a straightening comb through your head. And you better do everything you can do to make yourself look good. But I'm talking about real beauty is inner beauty. And you and I need to declare the gospel with boldness. In verse 31 of Acts 28, I'm trying to get to this end now. He did it without hindrance. And the gospel has gone from Acts 1-8 to Acts 28-31. And you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost upon come upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost parts of the earth. And Rome is the utmost parts of the earth. And Paul is preaching now without hindrance. That is, no one can stop the power of the gospel. And so he declares, and we see it in that ninth verse of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I am like a criminal, chained, but the word of God is unhindered. It is unchained. This is a very emotional uh, passage. My beloved son, Timothy. My beloved child. Tracy, my beloved son. My beloved child. Listen to the emotions. Verse number four. I, chapter one. I remember your tears. And I long for you. Desiring to see you that my joy might be full. Here's a man talking to a man like, I long. See, I, I don't know why we've gotten away from that. I don't, I don't know why men can't talk to men like that. I don't know why women can't talk to women. I just don't understand that. I don't know why little girls cannot appreciate each other and remain girls and boys remain boys. I don't know why. Well, where do we ever 
get away from this thing about telling our kids we love them. Well, you know, men don't talk that way to men. Well, if you hear Venice and I talk, every time we talk, it's, 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 we love each other. We appreciate each other. Do you know what he said? I need you. Now, that's the kind of thing you don't hear a man say much. I need you. But we need each other. I don't know why. If we don't need each other, quit singing a song. I need you. You need me. We are part of God's family. Quit singing that song. Because the hand needs the feet. And every one of us need each other. And the church needs to be authentically affectionate. One of the big problems in the church is nobody wants to touch nobody. We come into the church. We get our favorite place. We give out of the same envelope. We read out of the same Bible and we get up and leave and nobody knows a thing about us. Paul says, look, I, I remember your tears, son. And I long to see you that my joy might be full. Now, let's just visit verse number eight and nine for just a few moments. This is what I want to say to you, my son. Say to you what Paul said to Timothy. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Now that, that seems so unnecessary for the apostle to say to one of the great leaders of the church, Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ. What? But it's possible you can forget it. King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be, lest I forget thy thorn-scarred brow. Lead me to Calvary, lest I forget Gethsemane. Lest I forget thine agony. Lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. The reason why you have to keep preaching Christ is because people are either hard of hearing or they get amnesia. You've got to keep saying the story, telling the story. Across this nation, hear me. There are so many Christless sermons. Where Jesus is not mentioned one time in the sermon. Not once. So many. Remember Jesus Christ. God of our weary years. God of our silent tears. Thou who has brought us thus far along the way. Thou who has by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places. Our God where we met thee. Lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world. We forget we have an excellent memory when it comes to adversity we don't need prosperity theology we need adversity theology how do you handle life when you go through adversity and God's intention is not to just get us out of trouble God's intention is to teach us what we ought to learn out of trouble stay in it long enough to know that I will keep you in double peace, perfect peace, complete peace if you keep your mind stayed on me because you trust in me. Stop trying to get out of everything. Maybe God wants to keep me in it so I can learn what I'm to get out of it. Remember Jesus Christ there. There's the word amnesis, which is the word, Greek word that Jesus uses when he said, do this in amnesis, do this in remembrance of me. And then there's a word that sounds exactly like it, amnesia. We get amnesia about what we ought to remember. And we remember what we ought to forget. And the reason why the gospel has to keep being preached is so that people are kept in remembrance of what is the most important thing. 
Remember Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and who is a descendant of David. So remember the fact that he is deity, Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Jesus for they shall, he shall save his people from their sin. Christ, Christus, the anointed one. That's his deity. He has no beginning. He's God. But his humanity is, he is a descendant of David. Remember to preach that. Remember to tell people that Jesus became what he was not human and yet remained who he was, God. Preach that. He's not just a good man, a good teacher. He's not just a good uh, miracle worker. He is God in flesh. And that makes absolutely no sense to the human mind. But that's what you ought to preach. Remember Jesus Christ. He says, remember him, that he has been raised from the dead. One of the great churches, Pastor had to finally admit, he says, I can no longer preach about the resurrection. He said that on Resurrection Sunday morning. And there are persons all across this nation who've given up on the resurrection. They don't believe that uh, someone who's dead can be raised. You see, y'all are, are spoiled. You hear this all the time and you take it for granted. But I want you to know that people are starving to death all across. Don't go to Europe where this gospel is not preached. That Christ did die. Christ rose again. Christ ascended. Christ is coming back again. It's all about Christ. And don't ever get up and take a text and don't say anything about Jesus. He says... It's for this that I suffer. Because this is my gospel. Notice, this is my gospel. What? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus? That's it? Yeah. That's the irreducible core. Nothing said about prosperity theology. Nothing said about a whole lot of other stuff. He says, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's my gospel. What? That ain't exciting. You got to put some more juice to it. You got to make some more promises. You got to reach over and touch your neighbor and tell your neighbor this and that. No, 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 no. You teach and preach the irreducible core of the gospel that Jesus was born, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is coming again. Now that may not be exciting to unsaved folk, but I'm telling you it's exciting to me. And he says, it's because of this that I suffer and I'm in chains. Folk are not going to castigate you, persecute you for preaching sweet, flavory stuff. They just ain't going to do it. They like that stuff. Don't talk about sin. It makes me uncomfortable. Oh, no, 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 no. I, 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 I won't name the person. But uh, I declare it's a big church. He says he's not going to talk about sin. He's just going to talk about the positive thing because he does not want to offend folk. That's what the gospel is. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It offends folk. And thank God when you talk about sin, don't leave it there. Talk about somebody who can take you out of sin. Talk about somebody who can wash you white as snow. It's all right to have surgery, but sew me up when the surgery is over and put me in the recovery room and let me go home again. That's the gospel, he says, that I preach. And I'm suffering for it. 
and I'm in chains like a criminal. But the word of God is not in chains. You might put me in jail, Paul says. You, you might cut off my head. But the word of God is free. Unhindered, unlimited, unincarcerated. Joachim thought he was doing something in Jeremiah's day. He took the Bible and just cut it up with a pen knife and threw it in the Bible, threw it in the fire. But uh, you can't uh, cut up the Bible and make it uh, extinct. You can't put it in water and drown it. Uh, you can't refuse to reprint it because the word of God is in our hearts. You can't do anything because the word is unhindered. And one day Paul would die. There he is in the Roman cell. And before he dies, he reminds us, I, I'm now ready to be offered up. And the point, the time of my departure is at him. I fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished my course. And I am now ready because there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, but not to me only, but to all those who love his appearing. It's just between us. Don't ever, in fact, I hope I die one hour before you ever compromise the gospel. I don't want to be alive to hear you settle for anything less. Stay with the gospel. No matter how unpopular it is, uh, your orders don't come from the White House. They come from the right house. And as much as we love our leaders, the church must understand that politicians don't drive the church. The word drives the church. And I'm so sad, saddened by the fact that preachers have decided that they're going to line up with politicians. It's nothing unusual. Jeremiah was, a, was opposed by kings, by Amen. priests, Amen. by prophets. Everybody was against him, except God. And one plus God is not a majority. God plus none is a majority. He's God all by himself. And my mama said, he don't need nobody else. I want us to stand now. The doors of the church open. Somebody may be here. The gospel, the good news, is good news to those who will accept it. It's bad news to those who will reject it. Go into all the earth, preach the gospel to every creature. The one who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The one who does not believe shall be damned. It is one or the other. My brother, my sister, every head is bowed. This is where every believer ought to be praying because this is the number one thing on God's agenda. That people might be saved. That people might be saved. If you're here, and you are here, you know you're here. You may even be a regular visitor in the worship service. But you've never acknowledged your sin before God. You've never said to God, I know that I deserve to go to hell. I know I deserve your judgment. People say that I'm a good ethical, moral person, a good citizen. But I know that if there's any truth in it, that my ethics and my morality will never save me. So, Father, I come to you right now repenting. That is, I am godly sorrow. For my sin nothing can take away my sin except the blood of Jesus I repent I ask that you would forgive me no matter how dirty and dingy and gray that sin is he can make you white as snow 
and then he can fill you with his spirit so that he will live in you as a down payment, a deposit for all eternity. I commit you to him right now, someone who's here right now, who's concerned about making an eternal transaction right now. I'm not talking about just getting out of a crisis, getting out of problems, getting out of your pain. That's, that's good. That's fine. But you're going to have some more problems after you get out of that. You're going to have some more crises after you get out of those. But I'm talking about getting out of eternal damnation. God wants to save you right now. I want you to come right now. I want you to come now. I want you to come now. I want you to come now. And for someone else, as God speaks, God is speaking to you about a decision that you need to make for him. Remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that we are to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us with the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will have to help you and help me to do what we need to do. And he's come to be our helper, our comforter, our paraclete, our enabler. And if you're willing to step toward him, understand that he's already stepped toward you before you even make the initial step. The doors of the church open. As God speaks, as God works, have your own way, Lord. Have your own way. Let the choir, I'm going to sing.